0: Meet 2024's most anticipated robot vacuum, Eufy X10 Pro Omni. With powerful 8000 PA suction and Mopmaster's dual mop pads, it keeps your floor sparkling clean. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards, and Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's EUFY.com. And discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.
1: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. What That's the second time it's gone
2: off. Huh? Never on, they never got home, they never got home, they never got home, those those, stuff, boys. And I said, I want
3: to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you?
2: Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team.
3: <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Boy, do I know what musicians mean when they talk about their difficult second album. Thanks a million to everyone who got in touch or tweeted about last week's podcast. I must say I really enjoyed it, but what worries me now is that you'll all be demanding more of the same. So welcome, it's Richie Sadler here, desperately trying to lower your expectations for this Irish (laughs) Times second captain's podcast. I'm joined in the studio by Ken and Murph. How are you, lads? Hey there, Richie. How are you? Don't, uh, Don't put yourself under any pressure, Richie. Today is a new day. You you, know? mu- you must have that though. Sometimes, And something goes reasonably well, is the urge not to just quit while you're ahead? Oh no, the
4: the urge then is to just sit back, relax. You know, we can have another good show in two or three months' time. It'll be fine. <laughs> That's probably not great, is it? It's not a good attitude to have. No. You don't ever get that. Um, Relentless questing for ever greater heights of
3: perfection, Ken.
2: Uh, every day is a new day, Richie. Don't uh, worry too much about what happened yesterday.
3: Is that the advice you give to others, or is that the way you live your life?
2: Um, well, you, you asked for my advice, so that's, that's it. I usually wouldn't give it, but uh, you, you did ask.
3: Okay. Delighted to see me back in the hot seat. Of course.
4: Of course, Richie, And you've, you brought Bobby in as well. I mean, it's just such a beautiful working environment compared to... Oh, well. Listen, you know, we had a good innings. That's all I can say. We've had lots of fun, but teachers back. Next Monday, so we're just going to have to get used to that.
3: Yeah, I, I, I didn't mention Bobby was here. I think it's probably worth assuming that if I'm here, Bobby is here. We'll yeah. just take that as a given from now on. Um, but I think, Murph, actually, there's something I should should kind of come clean about. Um, and I think maybe I owe you an apology. Okay. Um, we've spoken a lot about dogs recently. Of course. Maybe Richard. too much. Well. In the minds of some <laughs> listeners. Um, my Bobby, your pickles. And on more than one occasion, I have rounded on pickles for... What mm. seems to be a glaring lack of an intelligence mm. and guile. Yeah, yeah. And I know you haven't liked that. No, know. I haven't. Are you, are you familiar with projection in um, psychology? Well,
4: I have a vague idea of what it means. They're basically, my, I project my own feelings of inadequacy onto another person or perhaps dog. Yeah, it's
2: the way you look around and think everyone is lazy, stagnant and complacent. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, uh, gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. That's a pretty good explanation. Well, I think
3: I've realised that that's maybe something what's going on here, that maybe pickles isn't the gormless, thick one. Mm, yeah, okay. I think it's actually Bobby. <laughs> oh, I right. I think it's yeah. actually Bobby, and mm. I just haven't allowed myself to see it before. I was actually walking in Marley Park the other day, and I met uh, another dog walker. And it's great thing about having a dog, you just chat to every dog walker that goes yep. by. And he remembered the time he had a St. Bernard, and he immediately said, you know he was the without doubt the stupidest dog I've ever had <laughs> and then I remember last night, week we were here and there was the whole debacle about Bobby mistaking a motorcycle for yep. another dog yep. um, and there's been numerous incidents around the house and I think I'm going to lay off the take jobs from now on and right. just accept that stupidity is something that Bobby has in abundance and I'm just going <laughs> to embrace it
4: <laughs> Well I think that's, I, that's a very healthy attitude to have and I, I find that once you admit to yourself that your dog is not the sharpest tool in the shed I mean you you, there's you know Who score, cares? Not, like, I mean, score any, not their simplicity are you, you know?
2: going to be some kind of tiger mother or whatever wanting your dog to <laughs> excel academically I mean it's it's irrelevant
4: I did voice uh, hopes that uh, Pickles would be the first dog to sit the junior cert but <laughs> realistically it's not going to happen you know I, I, I think that perhaps I, I, I set the bar too high um, actually though while we're talking about Bobby Simon could be please We have a question, uh, Richie, from one of our listeners. Kavan Abu asks live from Afghanistan. Really? Uh, if yeah, it, 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 he's a regular uh listener, regular tweeter, uh works in Afghanistan. Tells us regularly about life life there. Uh if Ken and Murph were breeds of dog, which breed would they be? Oh god. Do you have any thoughts on this? Uh well, Bobby is Thick and yeah, lazy I mean your height. I'm, I'm thinking <laughs> you.
3: I mean height-wise, you'd be you know
4: thick, lazy, and large, oversized. I mean, I I think uh, there's a lot of boxes being ticked here for me. I think um, Ken would just be a cat. Yeah. <laughs> now, is there a dog breed that Ken would be quite similar to? I'm not entirely sure. No. I don't know enough about dog breeds. What about cats? Would you Would you agree that there is
3: something cat-like in your?
4: I'd like to think so.
3: I suppose I better tell you what's coming up on today's show. I'm really excited about our guest actually. It's former Ireland international striker Stephen Elliott who this week signed for Drogheda United. Our paths first crossed actually in 2006. I was invited by Mick McCarthy up to Sunderland to continue my rehab for a hip operation I'd had two years after retiring. I had this big fanciful notion that I could make this big comeback and... Return to playing Stephen was signed there um, As a Sunderland player So looking forward to Kind of chatting to him About what all that was like uh, Your time at Sunderland Richie I'm trying to think of of, of the, the, the major highlights
4: From that And all I can think of is Getting on very well With Roy Keane And then After leaving Sunderland Falling out Quite spectacularly With Roy Keane
3: Yes the, Both of those things Were true While I, I didn't have actually Much to do with him like all the other players who were there actually had very little interaction with him while he was there um and while I was there but when I went to leave I he was really sound he was brilliant I I was really disappointed that my comeback attempt hadn't worked and I had to accept for a second time all over again that I'd retired and he couldn't have been more helpful he he, he was great brought me into the office a couple of times and and was sound but then a, a few months later god I don't know if it was a few months it was quite a while later I interviewed Clive Clark mm a Sunderland player who was out on loan and had a heart attack during halftime of one game. And I wanted to sit down with Clive, I was writing for the Sunday Independent at the time, just to see what the hell is it like to have Mm. a heart attack at halftime, survive it, and to talk about how things were then. But in the course of the discussion and the interview, he was critical of Roy Keane. And I had this debate, should I include those quotes or not? Mm. I didn't want to take from the fact that this is a piece about a heart attack. So, I emailed the piece to Clive a couple of days before. I said, Are you okay with everything? And he texted me back and said, Yeah, fine. Mm. The following day, he said, are you, you know, are you sure? Because I quoted like quite harsh words that he'd said about Kane, And he said, yeah. Absolutely fine. And I think he actually his reply to me was advice on which horse to back in that day's race at Leopard Sound or something right. like that. Yeah, yeah. So, that, well, he's fine with it. And then so I went uh, to, to print on the Sunday. And about 11 o'clock, I got a text from Clive going, Jesus, I can't believe you included that stuff I'm keen <laughs> oh, God. and I am sitting there going well I emailed you twice about it and twice you came back saying it was okay and he just goes well, t- to be honest actually I didn't read the email I just assumed it would be your normal column right, like, yeah, like yeah. 800 words whereas <laughs> this was a kind of I think I remember it's a big two page spread yeah where things went from there the following day because Clive was the first person to speak out mm. about Roy Keane. well he didn't realise he was speaking out <laughs> <But> his comments <laughs> well, were well yes f- he did
4: to be fair but anyway
3: yeah his, his opinions about Keane's management were the first critical yeah ones that came into the public domain and I remember on the following day on the Monday like Sky News ran them on repeat just put his words on the screen yeah and then I got a text from Clive saying listen just give you a heads up he's, he's going for you expect a call any day and then the following morning on Tuesday, I, I think I was having a lie-in, and I got a call, and it was Keen, and he was just in full rant mode. Yeah. It was, like, it wasn't a two-way exchange. It was one way. It was voices were raised. Expletives were used. <laughs> <laughs> and that was my first interview, actually. I remember thinking I at the time. I don't
2: understand what." I mean, it was true. What happened was true. Like,
3: Well, Keen took a different view of it because when I left... um. He was so sound and helpful and he was great. If I can help you out in any way, give me a shout. So I had, I had a testimonial to arrange for myself with Millwall and I thought, well... Because Millwall's a really unattractive away game for everyone. Like mm. no, no one wants mm. to go to Millwall if you can avoid it. So it's really hard to get an opponent. So I actually got on to Keane and said, listen, any chance you bring Sunderland down for a pre-season friendly? And we'd agreed on a date... But then Juventus came into play. See, Rob Zio was going to pick Juventus over Millwall, so I totally understood that. Huh. So it was a number of months later when this all happened, and Keane then linked the two. He said, You know, you, you're spiteful, so and so. I knew you'd do this just because we didn't show up for your testimonial. And he was in full flow about that. Yeah, but, you know, you did it. Like, that. that the I mean, he,
2: he said what he said, you know, he did what he did. Like, maybe he feels bad about it now, but there's no point in blaming you for it. It wasn't your fault.
3: Yeah, but you're bringing logic into this. That's kind of common sense thinking. And the morning when he rang, I I don't think he was taking a considered kind of bigger picture view in the situation. He was just really, really pissed off. He was probably annoyed that he was getting negative press. Yeah. Because up until that point, he was behaving the way he was in-house with the players, but nobody was speaking out. And when Clive said what he said, just the... Uh, the veil was lifted. Yeah, Yeah, a little yeah. bit. So I think that annoyed him more than anything. Yeah. It was always going to happen though, you
2: know, if you if you go on like that eventually someone's going to say something. But
3: I remember at the time thinking, "Why am I doing interviews? Just stick to doing columns." <laughs> it, it was the first time I'd ever done an interview and at the time I remember thinking there was very few footballers I would really want to sit down and interview mm. because most say very little. Yeah. And I'd no real interest in, in in a lot of what a lot of them would say. And it takes a lot of work. You have to transcribe the interview, write it oh, up, yeah. decide which yeah. bits to go in and how to piece it all together and which should, your words and theirs words and all that kind of stuff so I thought well here's a story about a heart attack this could be great turned out to be the interview I regret doing most <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'm delighted to welcome this week's guest in studio, Nine Ireland Caps, formerly with Man City, Sunderland, Wolves and a rake of other clubs, this week signed for Tragedy United, Stephen Elliott, how are you doing?
1: How's it going Richie? you alright?
3: It's been a while, um, yeah. just telling the lads there, we were the first cross paths in 2006, Sunderland.
1: It? Yeah, it was about that time, I think you would just come up the train at the club, wasn't it? And... Uh, no, I think you were trying to get some fitness back. I think you came in with Mick and that and you needed a bed to sleep in, didn't you? Oh, no, you
3: yeah, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll skirt past that. Yeah, um, I think I've read actually since, the, I think you've talked about that time in Sunderland as one of the happiest periods in your career. Yeah. And I suppose at the age you're at now, you're kind of coming to the end of your career, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Like. So what was it about that time in Sunderland that made it? The I don't. Know, looking back on
1: it, I've enjoyed all army all my clubs. Like I've kind of different periods of like at different clubs as well. I've had certain success successes at other clubs as well. But I think I don't know when I when I play when I signed for Sunderland. I think it was I was still a young boy really in my mind. And you kind of you playing with that no fear, and it was just an enjoyable time for me. I met my me wife there. Well, my, she was my girlfriend at the time. Now my wife, and I don't know. I just look back on it with, with fondness, and I still visit the area regularly. And obviously, I got in laws there as well. So I'm kind of over there, and I get to see the games a lot more. But I just I like the people up there do you remind me of the irish people a little bit you know
3: i always hear that i never got to be uh, an older player or an experienced player because i ended the, the age i did and the thing you just said there when you're young you play with no fear mm. like when does fear kick in like at what age
1: well i don't know for me anyway probably unknown to myself maybe because i had young children quite young you, you obviously i don't know whether it's but you, you, you know that it's your job and you know that you have to do well to kind of provide for your family. And I don't know whether that can probably be an obstacle in people's mind or that when they're playing the game. But for me, obviously, at that time, I didn't really think about stuff like that. That came in later on. And possibly that was one of the reasons why you don't... You probably think about things a little bit more like as you get older. But at that time, I had nothing. I just wanted to play football. That was the only thing that was really important in my life. And probably the way I played probably probably kind of... Mr. E, well, it was obviously wide.
3: Yeah, because things went really well. I remember, like, I, I would have left the club probably in December 06, realised that my comeback thing hadn't worked, and Roy had come in at that stage, and then the season just went, like, superbly well, which ended in promotion
1: yeah well that was that was a funny season uh, all around we started off pre season that year we didn't we didn 't have a manager Noel came in and I he remember. actually he took over the team he, he brought in a uh, Bobby Saxton with him who had been there in the previous regime when Noel was actually playing there and he came in to try and lift spirits in that but I remember the pre season i think we we done quite well in pre season i think we we won like a lot of the games we, we weren 't playing any really good teams but we started the season and we just we just mm-hmm. couldn't get a result. Like it was, it wasn't for the lack of trying. Like lads were trying, they were. There was kind of a big onus on us to get promoted uh, back up into the Premier League, obviously. But I don't know. Clubs are coming to the stage of light and as you know, it's a, it's a nice stage to the play. At and I think clubs lifted their games when they played us, but we just couldn't get result from anywhere. And it, it finished up before I came in. We played, I think, Bury in the League Cup, and we ended up getting knocked out to them. I think we got a man sent off early on in the game, and it was just remember like after five or six games you're looking at the table and you're rock bottom in the championship mm. clubs like no disrespect to them like Plymouth and other clubs miles above and you're thinking what's going on here but then obviously like you mentioned Roy came in and it was, it was kind of near enough a, a quick fix really.
3: Do you remember what it was like the morning he came in? I do yeah. I think I don't know whether you said this to me or someone who was sitting next to us said this. It was like, I don't know whether to ask him for his autograph or shake his hand. <laughs>
1: no, I don't think that was me because uh, when he first came in, obviously, Niall had said, Listen, yeah. so we're getting a really top name in the sport coming and take over the club. But obviously, at the time, Roy wasn't a known manager. So we, nobody would have thought of Roy Keane because we were looking, obviously, all the man, you know, the usual mm-hmm. merry-go-round of managers. You're, you're looking at all the names, thinking which one of them is going to be. So Niall has obviously said, Listen, we're getting somebody really well known in. So Roy obviously walks in. Um, he actually came in to meet all the lads before before he was officially the manager. Like, I think he was sitting in the stands for the West Brom game, which would have been Niles game, which he managed to get results probably to do with Rice sitting in the stand. But I remember the first day he came in, everybody was just like couldn't believe it. There was there was a lot of players there that would have been in, in awe of him, like and me myself, I had played briefly with him in the national team, so for obvious reasons he didn't know really many in the squad at the time. He kinda he came over to me and started talking to me and we like we he took us on a walk about around the Academy of Light, which you know is a is a mm. big old walk and he's I think he was just trying to get a feel of the training ground and stuff, but no, it was, it was interesting, all the lads kind of walked a few yards behind me and they kind of drifted back a little bit further as, as the walk went on and all of a sudden I found myself on my own standing with Ryan and it's a bit awkward, like you know, because everybody's like, oh look, Roy's best mate and this and that, which, which wasn't the truth obviously because it was just an obvious thing to, to chat away with him but no, he was great when he came in, he, he made some uh, really astute signings he brought in players that he knew, like he brought in some Man United players and lone young lads, he, he went up to Celtic and got a few of the lads from up there that he played with, like so Ross Wallace, Stanvarg, mm. and obviously the Irish lads like uh, Liam Miller, Grain, Cavanagh and all came in uh, more or less in, in the window, and we, it gave us a big lift at the squad. We needed that. We were like really down down on a down on the dumps after the first few games, and it was it was it was a really it was a really good fitting at the time.
3: I remember I was there the morning he came in, and I was at that meeting where he brought everyone into the room, and I remember the phrase he kept saying was he said we're going to raise the bar. In all areas, raised by raised by, and I remember the feeling everyone had leaving the room. It was this like this expectation that you know, we better up our game here. Mm-hmm. We're going to be judged on standards here. I remember someone at the time saying, "Here's a fella did, like the Man United players didn't match up to the standards that this fella has. Like what chance have we got?"
1: Well, it is. That's the thing. Like Roy came in, and maybe it might have been a fault of his at the time. I think he was so used to perfection at Man United that. I think he was training with some of the lads, and the way way we were, we, are, we were what we were, we tried our best now, but we weren't to the standard of what he had been used to playing for all them years, with the likes of Paul Scholes, players like that who just kept the ball for fun. We, we worked hard, but I think he, he expected it to be the same, and that was something that took him a while to kind of get used to and get the terms with, but like for example, even when the Man United came later on in the season, I remember he brought Dwight York in from Australia, mm. and. You you mentioned there about raising the bar, like I remember he changed the whole kind of body fat um test, he done everything. There was a big list in the whiteboard in the dressing room and if you if you fell uh, above
3: a if you weren't below I was still there at this point, yeah. if you weren't below ten percent body fat you wouldn't be considered for selection for the first time Th-
1: That was it. So I remember obviously uh, like you say, that was that was a big reel so everybody started looking down at the bodies thinking, For the first time yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well that was it, like so we, he brought in like the spinning sessions before training and that, which we didn't do previously, like he brought in a fitness coach uh, with him as well. Uh, I think it was Michael Clegg, Clegg from yeah. Man United, which which was a good appointment for the club. I says because as professional as the club was, there were certain things that could have been improved. And he, he noted this and he, he, he did improve it. But going back to Dwight, he came in and uh, obviously he arrived in his big white Lamborghini. Yeah, I remember? Do you remember like the windows that we were all like, who's this guy? Like, so I think he came straight off Bondi Beach or something. He? Mm. But uh, he came in and, like, obviously, Dwight being Dwight he had his top off and he thought he was like all chiseled and all. Like, so anyway, he the test results came up for Dwight and he was like above above the fat percent so I think he went absolutely crazy right he said well you know you can't play so Dwight was like "Fume came into the dressing room he was fuming he was like what's this all about right he says he wasn't even like this at Man United and so supposedly there was some rule that the older you were like the harder it was to get down at the body fat but like Dwight was absolutely fume, and he was but like we were all like to have players like Dwight York in the dressing room was a great experience for young lads like myself and other guys It was it was a it was an entertaining year, that's for sure.
3: Yeah, I think the year I was there, there was four different managers. It was it was Mick and then Kevin Ball and then Quinn and then Roy. But what surprised me, actually, when Mick left, he was sacked, I think it was around February. The club were at the bottom of the Premier League at the time, possibly on course to get one of the lowest points totals there was. But everyone seemed to be disappointed he went. And it was amazing because usually you think if a manager goes on the back of poor results particularly, there's a sense of relief for... There's some kind of friction between management and and players. I didn't pick up on that at the time.
1: No, everybody everybody had a lot of time for Mick. Like he was a great man manager. I think anybody that worked with him, he, I think you worked with him yourself. Yeah. You knew what he was like. He was he was an honest guy. If you, if you gave your all for him, like then he kind of rewarded you in ways. So everybody, like it's never nice to see anybody lose the job, especially the majority of lads that were there at the time. I think Mick would have brought them into the club, especially there was a lot of lads that had been playing in the lower leagues and brought. Um, Mick had brought him to Sunderland and like himself from like reserve team football. So we felt we had a little bit of kind of... I don't know. Th- we were thankful for what he'd done for us. So we, we were gutted to see him go because he, he kind of started a lot of our careers off by giving us the platform to kind of play our football. And as I said, because cause in the manner of the way the season went though, mm. it was really disappointing to see him. But in saying that, he didn't... When we got promoted, I don't think he was looked after really well by the chairman at the time. I think he could have been helped out a little bit more budget-wise because... As you know, the difference between the championship and the Premier League is so so high. You, you need to bring that experience in, mm. and that's something that we really lacked that se- season when we went up.
3: You mentioned there you were you you were signed from reserve football. That was at Man City, and mm-hmm. um, I know. Congrats on the move to Drahada, but you're also working with Sportdeck.com, and you wrote this week about that experience at Man City. First of all, what is Sportdeck.com?
1: Yeah, it's basically it's it's a sports app. Uh, for fans, where you can get all obviously the live scores and um, results of football games, and it's kind of up to date feed of all the news and going ons of what's happening in football, and it's it's basically it's it's all there for you in the click of a button. It's all in kind of one one place. You don't have to go looking mm-hmm. around, and it's 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 got some really good stuff on it. Some good interviews and um, people kind of exclusive interviews, and that and it's it's well worth having a look if you can kind of have the time to.
3: So, what's your role in?
1: Well, they've just asked me to come in and try and help out with some, some of the content and maybe like do a few kind of written pieces myself and maybe kind of speak with other people in the sport and kind of get an mm. insight from a, a footballer's point of view. But it's going, it's going well at the moment. As I said, hopefully it will uh, take off a little bit.
3: You wrote a piece this week I thought it was really, really interesting about your time as a youth player at Man City mm-hmm. and drew the obvious comparisons to what it must be like for youth players today at Man City. You were describing like a different world.
1: Yeah, it's it's funny because it, I just like anybody who's seen obviously the the new training ground there at, at Manchester City it's it's I don't think there's any anywhere better mm. and it's unbelievable. It's like a, a little mini kind of sports wall. It's like and say that, like, I didn't want to make out that I was complaining about what the upbringing like I had, like we, we trained at a place called Platte Lane, which for me, like coming from Belvedere Fairview Park was like amazing. But mm. as I said, like at the time we had two pitches, which weren't great at the best of times, you know, and an indoor kind of concrete kind of surface pitch, which we trained on. And listen, we, we, we had a great time there. It was, it was a great place to be. There was a lot of Irish there growing up together and you kind of become a man really quickly there and. I couldn't kind of say any more about how good the coaches were there either.
3: Those improved facilities that are there now, I'm thinking of Didi Hamann's comments after England were beaten by Iceland and he put down, one of the reasons was the academy culture which is in england now and the facilities are outstanding all the youngsters probably have agents they all have social media accounts they have nutritionists psychologists their heart rate monitors everywhere they go and he was wondering whether that would impact their hunger levels and it's this whole thing of know too much too soon this this thing that's often thrown at professional footballers when they're young um, certainly that wasn't the case when you were a kid or i was but do you buy into that that you can get things too easy as a youngster
1: there's definitely arguments for and against. Obviously, like the game has moved on, which the way it's even played now, it's I think it's a lot more athletic than when when we were younger, and that there's obviously all the sports science involved, like you mentioned there. But I think. Partly, like when player young players come in and they're used to kind of having the best of everything, they don't have any really jobs around the club. They kind of, if they want anything, they just have to kind of ask, and people are kind of jumping, at saying how high for the and it's, it's, I don't know. I think maybe there is a slight kind of lack of hunger there. I, I seen Paul Power done a piece in one of the papers in, in the, the UK there over the last couple of days, and he he was going on about he was a youth team coach of mine at the time at Plat Lane, mm-hmm. and he was going on about how Manchester City's force team they, they lack a bit, like a bit of mind about them in in other words there's no there's no kind of they're going on about the crowds That kinda of, the, the new city stage isn't as good as it used to be as the old main the atmosphere at the old main road but you're saying there's there's no kind of relationship between the fans and the club anymore, although like you could argue that Manchester City now since these guys have come on, they've won the Premier League mm. a couple of times, they're kind of challenging in Europe. So it's trying to get the balance right. But going back to young players I think it's it's really difficult now if you are a top club to kind of get, go and kind of make that transition because the money that's available to the managers now, they just they just look all over Europe and they buy established players already.
3: And I think it's the motivation as well with a lot of youngsters. I speak to, you know, you show up at training sessions or into schools and those who I speak to who want to be footballers, I ask them why. And you'd be amazed at how common the answer is around finances. Mm. It's, it's the driving factor with them all. Like when I was a kid, when I went to Millwall, I think my, I had to think before I came on, I think my weekly wage was 175 quid mm. and I had my digs paid. And I thought, geez, you know, that's, mm. I'm gonna, I, that's fine, I'm going to live plenty on that. But I realised that, this is before mobiles or emails, majority of that money every month went on the phone bill because mm. I spent most of it. And you have to buy a suit to go to matches and that swallowed up a load <laughs> of it as well. Like, was, can you remember as a kid even thinking about money?
1: No, as I said, I I I can vaguely remember the first contract I I signed at uh, Manchester City. The first year I was there, I was on fifty quid a week and forty quid expenses. Like so, yeah. obviously, at the time I was buzzing because I went from earning like being a young boy in school to earning this money. It was brilliant at the time. You think you're you're rich, like mm. basically, but like you say, you've you're just playing the game, you're doing it for the love of the game. Sure, I remember the the first time I went over, all the lads like a few, the, I shouldn't probably say this, but a few of the lads like at that age, it was kind of the thing after your academy weekend to go out and have a few drinks. Like, and so obviously, the first week I went over, there was a few Irish lads there already Paddy McCarthy, Brian Murphy, Stephen Paisley. You're all like, We're going out this weekend. So, I basically received my first weekly wage and went out and bought a load of going out gear because all I had brought in me is tracksuits in a, in a yeah. little Dublin City Swift bag. So, I went out and spent my full wages on a, on a going out. Gear and a pair of shoes and I think I had 15 quid left to buy, to buy myself into the nightclub and then a few drinks but not that we've done that every weekend but like that's that goes to kind of show you where how I was in relation to money back then it didn't really matter to me I just wanted to play football and enjoy myself.
3: So when you left Man City was that did you know it was coming for a while or did you expect to be gone when you went?
1: No I uh, I had a big decision to make when, I, when, my, when my first contract was up at Man City I'd just kind of broken into the first team squad uh, Kevin Keegan was the manager he took a real liking to me and he, he had me involved basically in the first team squad nearly for the whole second part of the year but listen it, w- it was difficult for me to kind of get some regular football they had the likes of Paolo up there Nicholas Anelka mm. Robbie Fowler players like that and at the end of the season, like <laughs> in uh, fairness,
3: that's not a bad. Group no, of that's players. what I
1: mean. So, but like for me, it was great to be training with these guys and learning off them and kind of to be around them. Like in general, it was like I went obviously. Up onto my last year at City, I was always training with the youth team and reserves, and that was my first team time properly in and around the first team on a regular basis. And honestly, I look back even now; it was a great even with Kevin Keegan. He was a fantastic coach, especially being an attacking player as well. He, he, he kind of some of the things he would have kind of coached on the football pitch back then. I I still kind of take with me now. And as I said, at the end of me at the end of my contract, I see they actually offered me another two years. They wanted me to stay at the club, so I had a big decision to make because at the time. I was I was like twenty years of age and I'd obviously made a few appearances for the yeah. fourth team, but I just could, I didn't see the regular games coming, and I was at that stage where I was ready for I felt like I was ready to kind of kick on and play some meaningful matches. So, obviously at the time I think S- uh, Sunderland obviously were interested in me and a couple of other clubs, but Celtic were interested in me as well at the time so I was like obviously I had an offer on the table to stay at Man City which would have been the easiest option I think to make obviously I was comfortable there I knew the area and that or else kind of go out on my own and and kind of play so as I said I went up and spoke with Celtic Martin O'Neill was the manager at the time I think I went up to the Henrik Larsson testimonial Mm -hmm. game in fact and Listen, it was a great, as a young boy going to Celtic Park, it's kind of, most, a lot of young boys would have been swayed, especially the atmosphere on the, the day as well, they played Seville and his testimonial, obviously Martin O'Neill selling the club and that to you, but no, I just, I I, I actually went and spoke with Celtic before I spoke with Sunderland, and after after Celtic on the way back down, I think I, I stopped off at Sunderland and spoke with Mick, and I don't know, there was something about Mick that I liked, I just mm. felt the warmth of him, I felt like he really wanted me at the club, and that was probably the reason why I left City, he was down to Mick.
3: And at this point did you have an agent? because I read in your piece this week your first contract you signed at Man City, you signed it in a McDonald's branch in Didsbury, with your parents there. you had no agent. surely at this point you're you're getting advice from someone
1: Yeah I had I had advice at that obviously as I think it was around eighteen or nineteen, I was approached by a couple of representative people, and I had somebody um broken me broken me contracts from then on in. Like I never signed a contract with any agents or anything, but never. No, I never signed anything with anybody. I always, I just, I didn't want to kind of have myself. I know obviously I think the game's changing a little bit now where there's players are signing contracts, but back then it was kind of a more of a handshake agreement and I was happy enough with that and the 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 agent I worked was happy enough with that as well. So I never really signed anything. But now going back to the McDonalds one, yeah, that it was like another big difference how the game is because Obviously, you go over as a kid now. Even kids now, I can see that he got agents from the age of fourteen, fifteen, like kind of shipping them in mm-hmm. and out of clubs. And for me, like it's obviously, I understand the game is changing a little bit. And there's a lot more probably money in the game to, even when I was young. But now, I just want. I, for me, it was all about playing football, like and the sign for an English club, like like you, mm. I'm sure you'd know. It's it's you just t- it's it's a dream come true, and I just couldn't believe. It. I, I listen, if they had offered me nothing in a week, I probably would have signed it. That's how much I wanted to play football. So.
3: And that, like you didn't grow out of that hunger, because later in your career, later in your twenties, like you, you, got to a point where you were paying for your own medical bills.
1: Yeah, definitely. I at Coventry, I I done my me medial ligament at the end of my contract at Coventry, and they were going through a lot of financial problems at the time. I think it was well known they couldn't pay their rent. It's still going on now there at the club. Actually, they're not happy with the mm. owners, and they had to kind of play at Northampton's ground, which was terrible for a club of Coventry size. But um, no, yeah, I I picked up an injury and was supposedly an injury that was going to be healed on its own but in the end it took me about i think 17 18 months to get back in the end i had to pay for my own operation and my own private physio to kind of get back fit which is something that it was me at the time i think i was 20 i don't know 29 at the Mm. time i just want i thought i had a few more years i wanted to invest in my career and i just i didn't know like you kind of i was speaking to you off earlier you're on about you've got that little bit of fear of like when you stop playing football like and maybe that was down to the reason why I was just like I didn't I wanted to give myself every opportunity to get back playing and in the end I did get back which for me it was rewarding like to have a little bit of kind of reward out of the investment
3: so you're you're back you're still playing this week you've signed a contract with Drahada. you mentioned there about the fear of of not playing and when that day comes that you you're going to stop where are you with that now
1: I'm I'm fine with it now. Like I think I realize over the last over the last few years, like you kind of you, you realized you know your own body and you know that. Listen, I still feel really fit. Like I haven't played much football in the last few years, and part of me wants to prove to myself that I can still do it because I've missed playing the games. So, I've like I've you there. I trained last night for the first time, and I absolutely loved the like you now getting being around the ball again. You can do all you want in the gym, swimming pools, and that as well, but nothing beats kind of kicking a ball around and. All the ex-pros I speak to always say to me, listen, if you can keep going on, keep going on, because nothing nothing else represents even playing the game. So from that point of view, I want to continue playing, but I do know it's going to come to an end at one stage. So I'm just trying to prepare myself in as many ways as possible because, as I said, you wouldn't, as a footballer from my area, you wouldn't have low well. Not many people I know have loads of education or any stuff behind them. So you've got to kind of have your mind focused and saying when it does come to an end, be in a position to be like not... Because a lot of people go into depression, as you know, go into depression mm. about worrying what they're going to do. So, I, as I said, at the moment, I'm trying to keep myself kind of active doing bits and pieces. Like, I'm in the middle of doing me coaching. Um, I'm in, I've got my B licence assessment coming up in March as well, and I'm doing bits and pieces in the media. So, it's just you try and keep your mind active more than anything else, and then hopefully something will come out of it.
3: You, you're sounding the way a lot of footballers sound when they come to the end of their career, but mm. I often hear it from footballers, and I know they don't back it up with actually actions. Mm. But you're Working already on your coaching badges, you have the media stuff as well. Another thing, so it sounds like you're already preparing for the transition out of football.
1: Yeah, they do. It's like like when you're a young kid, like 19, 20, 21, and like you're playing and you're earning lots of money, like, you don't give
3: it a thought, do you?
1: No, every and and the thing is, though, so many senior pros say, Listen, because yeah. like, I've had it myself, the mm-hmm. likes of like I think Gary Breen was in this was a senior pro, and Kenny Cunningham came into Sunland for a bit as well. He's saying, Be be, uh, be prepared for like afterwards. But when you like, try telling that to a 21 22 year old that's scoring goals week in, week out, you, you think you think this goes on forever, but. Hey, time flies quick. I'm like I'm married now with four kids, and like they're my priority now. And it's it's like you kind of have to. I don't know. You have to kind of your selfishness kind of disappears a little bit because well, I'm, yeah. I, I'm more I'm more caring about how I can kind of look after them now rather than myself. I don't I don't really my, myself come kind of second to my family now at the moment, and that's something that I'm I'm trying to make sure that when I do eventually stop playing, which hopefully won't be for a while, that I'm well prepared for. It.
3: Right, well, I wish you well for the season with Trader and with Sportech and everything else you do. It's good to catch up again. Thanks Cheers, for Richie. Coming thank in. you. All Cheers.
2: The training pitch is a disgrace. Somebody's got to, somebody's got to hold an hand up and say, it's like training on a car park. No, 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 no regrets about it. No. You as you ask me a question, I'm going to give you an answer. Who, John Delaney? He could have found me, of course he could have. Try my hotel room.
1: Yeah,
2: you can laugh. I was to walk up. As an ex-player, and as an man, and I mean an Irishman, uh, born and raised here. Then I thought like, I was in time to give my opinion.
3: Swinging in the backyard, pull up in your fast car, whistling my name. Which phone is that? That's the
2: second time
3: it's gone off. Open up a beer
0: and you say get over here and play a video game. Why would you turn it off? I see you on silent. You are just gonna let it rain. All oh, right, it's good
2: manners. <clears throat> if that was my team, I'd go into the dressing room, and I wouldn't even mention handball. I'd just say, why didn't someone put their head in it? France would definitely take it, and Ireland never grabbed it. Usual. Off. Usual stuff. Afraid of that next step. Mentally not strong You're enough. The road, they can complain all they want, and all these complainers, they can complain all they want. It's not going to change France are going to the World Cup Get over it
3: So did you uh, enjoy Reminiscing about The old days there Richie? I did I'm always conscious actually When you you sit and talk To former players And not to sound like One of those players That I hated When I was a youngster it's, You know yeah. too Elfla's banging on About you know Back in our day But I suppose When you get to this age It's kind of unavoidable
4: Yeah 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 Well I mean That is uh, that is the way of things You know the way of the world Is the the elder statesmen Try and pass on their knowledge to the to the next generation, the youngins. You know, we just
3: we just sit back and reflect. Actually, one of the memories which which came into my head as I was talking to him was some of my own experiences at Man City. I remember a game we played at Millwall, with Millwall at Main Road. It was in February nineteen ninety nine. We were beaten three hmm. nil. Why the game sticks out in my memory was because my parents' wedding anniversary was Paddy's Day, and at this time, at this stage of my career, playing at Main Road, I think was probably the you know yeah, most decent yeah. crowd. So I said, you know what. Mum and dad, here's a present. Weekend in Manchester, ticked to the game, celebrating style. What I didn't know um, would eventually happen, you can YouTube it now, the footage is quite difficult to watch. A load of trouble kicked off in the stand that they were in. Yeah. And my mum ended up in tears. Coins, mobile phones thrown oh, in God. all direction, um, n- Not by mum. But um, Riot Police were called in And I think on the back of that violence in that game There was a ban placed on away fans travelling To subsequent Man City Millwall games two years later So we had this weird experience of playing at Main Road With no Millwall fans And then Man City played at the Den With zero Man City fans Wow Because of the trouble that day Where my parents were in the thick of it And hopefully unrelated, they divorced a few years later. So <laughs> it all ended well.
2: Did they come over and see you uh, after
3: that again? My mum actually said, do you know what, Richie? I think I'll just stick to home games in future. <laughs> and she stuck to her word.
4: Because, I mean, there's never going to be any trouble at home games. Obviously. Exactly. You're, yeah, you're, yeah. You're mean. <laughs> I mean, think if there's going to be trouble, we're going to be in the vast majority. That's, uh,
3: they actually came over, they were at the, the, the playoff, semi-final the night we were beaten by Birmingham in the last minute game and, and we were all told to stay in the ground because the riots were so bad on the street that we were just it's not safe to go out in the streets and yeah. um, it was a Thursday night it was in London we were the only fixture rival fans from different clubs had all congregated outside in the streets like police horses were on fire shit. cars were upturned on the back of violence that night a whole load of new security measures were put in place for Millwall to, uh, to stick to the following year so it was... Um, an amazing experience, actually, being a former football player. I don't know yeah. if anyone else has these kind of bonkers stories to tell, but that was just the life.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty. That's pretty insane.
3: Uh, just to make up, actually, on something Stephen was saying there, um, young players now they, they don't do jobs and everything's provided for them. Where do you stand on this, Ken? Academy culture, the downfall of English football? Um, well,
2: I don't. I mean, lots of people say that. Um, Dennis Berakamp, for instance, we were talking about talked about that before. He he says uh the reason Holland doesn't produce good players anymore is um, is basically because everything is too structured. Um everything is kind of over-organized, there are almost too many facilities and too much structure so that everything is thought out in advance for the players. They don't have they don't have to deal with unexpected situations. They don't have to just you know, like what we were talking about, in Richard Pochettino yesterday. His mm-hmm. football is creative malice, and they, nobody learns how to be nasty. And nobody learns the the player that that Bergkamp always points to as being as having all the things that he thinks have now vanished from Dutch footballers uh, is Luis Suarez, who was at who was at Ajax for a few years. And he said, "Look, this is this guy is like a footballer like we used to have." Um, the thing is, would you? Uh, you know, is is it worth... <laughs>
4: well, see, this is it. I mean, we've talked before on the show about this, that, okay, maybe there's too much put on a plate for footballers in the academy system, but the academy system of 20 years ago basically legitimised hazing of teenage boys mm-hmm. in the cruelest fashion possible. Yeah, I mean, it,
2: it's like if you... You know, this idea that you have to grow up in in tough conditions, um, you know, on, on ruthless streets... Which which will soon teach you how to. Uh, do you dismiss be- that?
3: Do you dismiss that entirely, or can you see something in it?
2: Well, I I, I mean, actually, I think mostly those kinds of conditions tend to weed uh, tend tend to take people out rather than rather. I mean, I'm sure some some people would come through and be and be like you know a clever kind of uh, footballer with with great skills and you know a kind of creative malice. Uh, that is talking about, and lots of others will just end up um, drinking too much, taking drugs, you know, getting involved in, you know. So, so it's, it's. It, I, I think those kinds of conditions destroy many more people than they're the making of. You know what I mean? So, on balance, yes,
4: yeah, so you for you know getting forged in the furnace. Unfortunately, the furnace burns up. Yeah, ninety five percent of the people. It's not. It's
2: not an efficient way to to do things. I mean, maybe. It's hard to know really what the what the sort of formula is, but like, okay,
4: well, less money would treat well treat the young players with more respect, but give them way less money. If you're the club
3: that's that, that leads the way in that, mm-hmm, it yeah. just means no you're not good gonna have players, players. will sign for you.
4: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's basically it, isn't it? Mm. Um, but I mean, uh, this idea that a fourteen-year-old is now a commodity in football. I mean, that's like that's that's where the problem is. You know that. They're being signed, they're not joining academies, you know, they're being signed to academies, which makes them, you're commodifying them even at that early age, which means that there's a market, which means you have to try and make the proposal you're giving to that player you know, a, a compelling one.
3: I remember when I signed, I was on a, I think they call it like non-contract. I don't actually know what that means, but you, you, I wasn't an apprentice, but I didn't have the status of a full professional. So I was kind of in this middle ground where the upshot of it all was I wasn't contractually obliged to do uh, the the jobs around the training ground. So when the lads started cleaning the toilets, cleaning up and the canteen after the pros and doing all the other stuff I didn't have to do. But the manager at the time pulled me aside and said, listen, you don't have to do this. But I think it's no harm if you did, because it'd get you know you strengthen the bond with the other squad, so you won't be alienating yourself from the other U team players. And if and when you make progress, you'll you know feel that all the more because your your daily jobs will have been eliminated, all that yeah. kind of stuff. And I said, okay, fair enough. So I just joined in and did all the jobs. Yeah, and that was just what he did.
4: Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it, it it like it it makes a lot of sense. I don't think you you if you're the head of a, the academy at Aston Villa and you make this decision to write, okay we're not going to do that. We're going to treat the academy players with more respect but way less money. More respect than they were 30 years ago but way less money than they're getting now then, you know, as you're just going to get eaten up. But I mean, mm. if you're that's where either legislation or the FA comes in. But I mean, like both of those things are entirely toothless, I would say, in the face of we've got a brilliant player who we can sell. Worst case scenario, we can sell for, you know, 15 million in you know, like if you've got a brilliant player, you're either going to get the benefit of that player, or that player will play for you for two or three years, and then you sell them for a vast amount of money. Then, you know, that's that, mm. that talks way louder than anything else, I presume.
3: Mm. Ken, your football show featured John Delaney's grand designs.
0: First of all, I'd like to welcome John Delaney here today. Delaney here today.
2: Like to Trying to be critical as well as be, being possible. Building a house, you build the foundations for us. The chimneys at the top, the chimney for us. It's international football. As well as
0: the go the pleasure, the entertainment, the organisation, the skills that you take to everybody is fantastic.
2: But you don't have a chimney unless you've got a very strong foundations. Yes, sir. John Delaney's instructions on how to put together a house: foundations, then the chimney, chimney and in between that's where you've got the scope to be creative.
4: Of course, you've got a dormer, you've got the bungalow, two yeah. story. Um, so, the, so it was John. Basement, do you mean, do you start with the foundations basement? I mean, there's actually a load of options really, isn't there? There are, there are. And, you and he,
2: and he explained a few of them to the Doyle committee. Um, they had him in, uh, they had him in the other day to, uh, to talk about this. Uh, well, to, I'm, I wasn't quite sure why they had him in. Uh, and it was difficult it was even more difficult afterwards than before to understand why the whole thing had happened, but um we talked to tay malone who was who was there about about what we went on there and um and also talked to Simon Hughes about Jabby Alonso, who has announced he's retiring at the end of the season um I was looking up something in the in the meantime um just on what we were talking about before um about the kind of you know, young players and so on mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, Sergio Aguero and uh, Luis Suarez uh, played uh, baby football. They've got a thing called baby football in, in Uruguay. Um, Suarez says, at first this model looks similar to that used around the world, but in Europe they encourage an almost no-contact sport at that age. Baby football in Uruguay is physical and aggressive, Some mothers and fathers keep their children away from it because they believe that some of the fun is lost due to the intensity, some even consider it dangerous. It reinforced a message I had already learned from the street that you play to win at any cost. So that's uh, an important part of it is teaching children that violence is part of football at a very young age. But, you know, when you've got all the parents standing around, you know, a lot of the parents maybe are going to take issue with that. They're not prepared to take the long view. Sure, my child might be bleeding and screaming, uh, and crying. Uh, but this will this is character building. In the long run. Yeah. And will stand to them. You know, Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, um, may one day even be thankful for this. You know, when he wins a penalty by cheating, diving in the in penalty or in the World Cup. Um, maybe a, a nation will one day celebrate and, uh, for the less... But, you know, a lot of parents these days aren't prepared to stand by and watch their children brutalise or be brutalised by other children. So, you know, it's just... You know, what have we become as a society, I guess?
3: <laughs> right, that's all we've got time for for today. Owen is back on Monday. I have to say this has been an absolute bloody pleasure sitting in this seat. You can tweet the show at Second Captains, email us on editor at secondcaptains.com. Thanks, Ken.
2: Thanks, Richie. And thanks, Murph.
3: Thanks,
4: Richie, and well thanks, done. Murph. Cheers, Murph. Got- is lads. That? That's
2: the second time it's gone off.
4: Never go home, they never go
0: home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. Meet 2024's most anticipated robot vacuum, Eufy X10 Pro Omni. With powerful 8000 PA suction and Master's dual mop pads, it keeps your floor sparkling clean. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards, and Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's EUFY.com and discover X10 Pro Omni.
3: .com code super 24.